0: I'm Anne-Marie Cannon, and you're listening to The Last Train Leaving Belgium podcast. The Last Train Leaving Belgium is a Belgian Rabbit production. Thank you for joining us for Episode 3, Part 1 of the podcast.
1: Especially if you look at the older military historians, older books, that uh, in fact the Germans behaved very brutally and callously uh, towards the Belgian civilian population, and and they they killed about six thousand in the first month of the war, really over a period of about three weeks. They're very bloody-minded and. Uh,
0: episode, we speak to Jeff Lipkes, author of Rehearsals, The German Army in Belgium, August 1914, which recounts the brutal World War I invasion of Belgium by the Germans. It's a disturbing part of history which has been swept under the rug by governments and scholars alike. The book also recounts the reason I cannot tell my mother's story without first going back to what happened to her family in World War I. This is a supplemental limited series podcast. That is meant to accompany the soon-to-be-released documentary. Stay up to date with the latest news on the documentary as well as the podcast on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast platform. If you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. All those actions bump us up in the algorithms of the website, which in turn makes it easier for people to find us. So we're here today with Jeff Lipkes. Jeff received his PhD from Princeton. He has authored several books, including the one we'll be talking about today, Rehearsals, The German Army in Belgium, August 1914, which describes what happened to Belgian civilians when the German army invaded in August 1914. He has also written Politics, Religion, and Classical Political Economy in Britain, John Stuart Mill and his followers, which according to the economic record is innovative, provoking, and revealing. His study redraws the map of Mill's intellectual history. And according to the Economic Journal, it is a first-rate addition to the mill literature. Mr. Lipkies is also working on a book about Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary from 1904 to 1916 titled, The Lamps Go Out, Sir Edward Grey and the Origins of the First World War. He has also among other things written articles on the history of economics, the history of economic thought and British intellectual history welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thanks for inviting me.
0: Uh, did I leave anything out or get anything wrong in that intro? Well, I
1: just, I just felt a twinge of guilt about the Shredwood Gray book because I put that aside for a while. I'm working on something else on actually on, on contemporary anti-Semitism, but I do plan to go back to
0: Shredwood. Oh, interesting. At some, so at what, some point. what's, do you have a title for the new book that you're working on?
1: Well, I'm not sure. I don't really have a good title yet.
0: Interesting and timely. So we're going to really talk about uh, the first book I mentioned, Rehearsals the German Army in Belgium, August 1914. If you could just, you know, give us some background about the book.
1: Well, okay. Uh, It's towards late in my teaching career. I'm retired now. I was teaching a lot of classes in 20th century Europe, 20th century world, and then the World Wars. These are popular classes, unlike classes in the history of economic thought. You get a bigger draw, mm-hmm. and uh, so I got it. And I got into the two world wars. And what you run across in the standard text, and in the one thing why the courses are attractive to students is you wind up showing a lot of documentary footage, especially World War Two, because there's so much good documentaries.
0: I don't know about you, but if I was given the choice of listening to lectures about the theory of economics or watching documentaries about World War One, I I'd definitely pick the documentaries of World War One.
1: And there's but there's a standard one now. And it reflects the popular opinion at the time. The authors were not, you know, didn't know very much about really what went on in Belgium. And it, but that was the consensus was that these so-called atrocities were just manufactured by British propaganda. They were trumped up in London. Or some historians said that, well, you know, some, they did respond harshly to Frank Teruers. Frank Teruers were, were the supposed guerrilla sharpshooters. Who in fact didn't exist. There was no civilian resistance to the Germans. But either the the uh, these atrocity stories were just fabricated entirely, or they were or they were exaggerated. And that the Germans really behaved quite well, and that Allied propaganda mills just churned this stuff out in order to uh, mobilize public opinion behind the war. So I was curious about this, and I just began looking into it more. And I really, at one point, decided to write a short book because I discovered especially if you look at the older military historians, older books, that, uh, in fact, the Germans behaved very brutally and callously uh, towards the Belgian civilian population. And, and they, they killed about 6000 in the first month of the war really over a period of about three weeks. They're very bloody minded. And uh...
0: So basically, the jumping off point for Jeff Lipke's book and his research is This discrepancy between the accounts of what actually happened in Belgium at the opening of the invasion, often referred to as the Rape of Belgium, There's this idea that the atrocities committed at the hands of the Germans against the Belgian people was not really as bad as indicated by survivors' first-hand accounts that were reported to the British government in 1915 and accounts taken after the war. There was and still is a standing belief the stories of civilian massacres were nothing more than propaganda designed to sell the war to foreign governments, including the United States. And to complicate things, there were reports of specifically horrific acts that did not actually happen. Sensationalized accounts told by non-witnesses, which in the end helped to delegitimize firsthand witness accounts.
1: It's the story subsequently, in the twenties and thirties kind of seized on these on these stories and said, look, you know, these these were all made up. In order to discredit the real killings that that the Germans committed, the real war crimes. Now in the I looked carefully through newspapers for the first months of the war. These stories do not appear in any newspapers, any reporters, but but they're stories of um fingers being and hands being chopped off, breasts being chopped off, eyes being gouged out. They're there are these gory uh tall tales that really did not happen the germans so just... why
0: why do you think they because i've i've read about this and this is one of the problems with apparently uh the credibility of the real stories that happened. why do you think that exists
1: well i you know it was really these the belgian civilians were pretty accurate because i looked very carefully at, at the at the these appendices this one appendix in particular but it was the soldiers for whatever reason they just you know, they were repeating gossip that they heard. It never took place in their own company or their own regiment. It was always somewhere else. But, uh, and, and then, you know, these were, you know, you could see why these would have a, a um, sort of sensationalistic appeal because there, were, there was even a story about British soldiers being crucified, nailed to a, a barn door. Uh, so um, they're just more um, lurid than, than than simply men being taken out of their homes, marched to a town square or to a field and gunned down. I mean mm-hmm. that because that's what they did repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but but I do but you know I do want to repeat that the British press. I looked at seven or eight of the leading dailies, and they were very. They talked about some of the real killings that went on in some detail, especially Leuven, which was the Oxford of Belgium. That got a lot of coverage there are very, very few stories, you know, one or two were carefully qualified by the reporters about these uh, really um, outrageous and gory atrocities. So, so I don't know, it just must have taken root after the um, publication of these appendices in, in April. Uh, but in any case, so- just and, they, to be and
0: that the atrocities and the thing that is referred to by some as the rape of Belgium Uh, never really happened. And so, okay, let me ask you one question about that. Do you think that it was because they were just trying to play it down on purpose or because there was that evidence that, no, these stories really didn't happen, so none of the stories happened?
1: Part of a general revulsion to the war was that also uh, was that the um, British commanders were buffoons and American commanders too, the line was they were um, lions led by donkeys, you know, something like that. okay. Uh, Along with that was a misinterpretation of the Versailles Treaty. It was because the Versailles Treaty was taken to be this harsh, draconian, um, totally unfair uh, peace arrangement. And it's just not true, really. (laughs) There's all this. Uh, this was just one part of the general reaction to the war. And what's interesting is that in the, it was not. It was actually both on the left and the right, but primarily on the left that these store these um, skepticism uh, was uh, repeated in 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 America and in uh, and in Britain. But in Germany, it was the right wing that obviously wanted to discredit the stories about the. Behavior of the Germans in Belgium. And it was the left wing that was really interested in exposing what had really happened. So it's kind of an interesting switch there.
0: So, in a weird twist of history, Different countries, different factions in different countries at different times had something to gain from the sanitizing of the atrocities committed at the opening of World War I against the Belgian people. Well, so the, the way that I come into this story and into your book is mm-hmm. I grew up, my mother was Belgian. She was born in Belgium. She was seven years old in World War II uh, when the Germans invade a harrowing story. That is what the documentary is about. It's about her experience through the filter of her daughter, me. But also, uh, she sadly, she died two years ago. Um, we, I do have some personal interviews with her in Belgium. So I grew up with these stories. And one of the stories that I was told was about World War One, And it was about my mother's great aunt. And her name was Adele Aubillon-Charlier. And my mother was close to Adele, and I think about it because I thought, well, she was a great aunt. How close could you have been? I have a great nephew. I, you know, it, it means more to me now. I, You know, it hits home a lot more. So my mother uh, would tell this story about uh, Adele's family was massacred in an aqueduct beneath the bridge in Neff, which is right across the Meuse River from Dinant. And you even wrote in your book that the Neff uh, massacres were especially horrific. So I knew the story. It was kind of a legend in the family. We knew that. We knew the story about my mother because she she talked a little bit about that too. But uh, later on, flash forward, my mother's in her late 70s and I am in grad school. And I my background is I'm a storyteller. So I was getting my master's degree in creative and professional writing. And I was studying multimedia writing because I was really interested in the different ways that you could tell, you know, stories that I could tell stories. So I started this journey of this documentary. And the podcast episode one is actually the beginning of that journey. Uh, That was a project I did for school. Probably about two years ago, I was contacted by a cousin. The cousin, Guy Charlier, is actually the grandson of Adèle Aubillon-Charlier. Guy's father, Georges, was one of the three children of Adèle Aubillon who survived the massacre beneath the aqueduct in Neff, Belgium in 1914. And he actually sent me a link to your book, and that's how this all started. And what uh, became of that is that, you know, you have a a very detailed first account uh, that talks about what happened to Adele's family. The details just make it so much more real to us. And as I started researching this, one of the things I found out is exactly what you talk about and the fact that basically this idea of the rape of Belgian was a farce. It was uh, propaganda and it didn't really happen. And yet, you know, in, in my family, this has always been a kind of, a part of our family narrative so that's how I found you and that's why this is so important to me um, and one of the other things that I found really frustrating was that whole idea that the history books and whatever I was reading was telling me oh it really wasn't that bad and it was that bad and yeah. it, it is carried in the psyche of uh, my mother and uh, flash forward, the Germans invade Belgium in uh, World War II. Where is my mother staying? She's staying right there in front of that aqueduct where those people mm. were killed. Gee. She's seven years old and this legend is you know, ingrained in her head and she was already afraid of the Germans and oh my God, the Germans are coming again. And her father is off in France fighting the war. So in uh, her escape to uh, France is a harrowing story. So I was really frustrated. And I don't know if hurt is the right word, but I'll just use that word. I was I was kind of hurt and offended at this idea that um these horrible things didn't happen.
1: Yeah, I I sympathize completely because I, I don't have um relatives in Belgium, but I uh, I'm not, not Belgian myself, but I um uh, I felt the same thing at this, this this sense of kind of outrage at the injustice um that was done to the Belgians. You know, one time with the with the invasion, but then in in burying it, in disparaging the the testimony, because there's just there's so much testimony. i
0: and I just have to say, it was such a gift to find you and to find this
1: book. Oh, because, thank you.
0: Like I said, my mother was very fond of her uh, great aunt. There was the the family legend and the story that had been passed down. Uh, the account that you give in the book of Adele and her family, actually uh, clarifies. A lot of uh, things that were we were kind of mistelling each other uh, because I, I feel like I can count more on Adele's account than our family legend. And it's interesting, that whole idea of how, you know, we pass things down from generation to generation. But that was such a gift for for me and also for my mother to be able to uh, read that account. I do have to say that I've been reading the book again, uh, getting ready for this interview. It's very heavy. It's very heavy. Yeah. And it's like I have to, you know, step. I had to step back from it, but it's it's painful. It's a painful history.
1: It is, yeah. I was criticized for, you know, excessive uh, obsession with with uh, the grim details. But it's. I just wanted. I just didn't want to hear that the, the myth about the invention about the British propaganda machine and the invention of so-called Belgian atrocities. But I, but of course the book you know you never your objective in writing a book is never realized um you know you that's still people still persist and although historians are better now, but journalists still will will, will uh, disparage the what happened
0: so um why did you write the book ultimately why did you want to put that out there?
1: well again, it was just a sense of uh, of injustice of of correcting this mis misinterpretation, especially in this film, uh, the most uh, best source of information, because it was shown in in classrooms across the country year after year, was this film called The Great War in Modern Memory, something like that, of Jay Winter was the author, and uh, it was just disseminating this erroneous picture, and I just felt kind of aggrieved about that, and I just wanted to set the record straight. I couldn't believe, you know, going back and first reading, you know, first I read these military historians. Barbara Tuckman is a certainly popular author known to to a lot of people. Uh, uh, the, the Guns of August, and she actually gets it, mo- some of it right as far as the scope of the, the killings, and and then some of the military historians do. Uh, but then you know, then there's just tons of sources in French, in, but but collect because uh, all fi- official documents were in French, even uh, for events that took place in in the northern Belgium, in the Flemish-speaking areas, uh, provinces, but uh, uh, but there's, and, and I did want to, you know, give credit to, uh, I've used different sources to put together this story, but a very important one was um, this multi-volume work by two priests, or there were um, clergymen of some kind, I don't know, uh, uh, Schmidt and uh, Neuland, who, I think partly because they were priests, were able to get people to open up afterwards and tell Tell in detail their their stories. They were trusted figures, and and uh, so so a lot of the details do come from them. Uh, they inter- you know in the early early twenties they were interviewing the s- survivors. So but there was there's just lots and lots of material out there, and it was just an urge a desire. And again, I thought it was going to be very short,
0: uh-huh. but
1: re- the first book was over 800 pages. I thought it was going to be a very short look at what. The Germans actually did, but I just got carried away and I went to Belgian Belgium uh I think three times and looked in the Brit- British archives as well, because all the priests in every um diocese were required to submit uh, reports about what, ha- what happened happened in their diocese. So in, in all of the archdiocese, there are records of these priests, their handwriting, you know, of what um, what went on. And some who did
0: who did they uh re- who did they submit the reports to? To, to, the,
1: to the bishops okay the bishop was in, in Mechelen um, or malin as it's called in french and uh, liege and namur the th- the three uh, bishops uh and and so they're in the, those archives. so they had to write these reports and uh, and then plus just lots of people just published short memoirs and uh um, there were new, you know newspapers and journal articles of eyewitness accounts of what happened so there's just a lot of material out. There's just no excuse for repeating these lies about, about right. what, what went on.
0: So are you Belgian? Are you French? Do you speak French? Do you, <laughs> no. you read?
1: Well, that I do. Is... I, yeah, I okay. do read, read. And my spoken French is now pretty terrible, but it was okay enough to talk to people then. It was. I wished it were, was better, but I did interview people actually and did not. There were still a few survivors. Um, but uh, I mostly I didn't speak with any of them. I but I did speak with nieces, nephews, children, and grandchildren. Uh, so I did get some firsthand stories, some stories directly that were not had not been published or were not in archives.
0: Right. Wow. Uh, so I want to read this excerpt. It talks about you know the the idea and one of the things I really appreciate about your book is that you're sharing these stories. Uh, there are people who experience them and everybody's perception is different, but it it is still a really important part of the fabric of the truth in, in the bigger picture. And so uh, one of the things you say is uh, there is no one story to tell. There are rather multiple points of view on a given historical event, and one has to make heroic efforts to avoid privileging those of the dominant race, class, or gender, or in wars the triumphant nation or colonizing power. I thought that was really powerful and um, kind of, you know, uh, consolidates everything you just said about why you wrote the book. For me, that's the truth. There's scholarly truth, and then there is a. Bigger, greater truth, which takes into consideration the facts, but also the emotional experience of people. I feel like this is what you do with this book. And I, you know, really appreciate it.
1: This is, you know, there's a maxim history's written by the winners, but in this case, it actually it actually wasn't because it was the German version that really got disseminated and propagated. Uh, because the Germans were very after the war, they were very interested in clearing their name. And uh so they spent a lot of money and had a lot of people working on these uh, magazines and journals that were, um, were were dedicated to putting out their story, and they succeeded. Uh, the, the version, you know, their their version got accepted and taken into adopted by historians.
0: And then you also say in the book, you say, however, I believe the underlying reason for the continued unwillingness of journalists and popularizers to acknowledge what happened in Belgium in August 1914 has to do with the seductive appeal of revisionism. Mm -hmm views inspired by the bitter reaction to the Great War during the 1920s and early 30s though long rejected by most scholars have retained their grip on public opinion briefly revisionists believe that all the nations that went to war in 1914 were equally to blame they slithered into war i thought that was really interesting and what could you tell me a little bit more about this idea of revisionism
1: well sure it's attractive to to think of yourself as skeptical cynical as you know our parents and grandparents were swept away by propaganda but we, um, we know better you know we're it's a very self-flattering idea and that was p- part of the attraction and then a uh, part of the attraction was a you know a legitimate reaction to the kind of demonization of the, of the enemy that went on in all the countries you know especially in America
0: so I want you to tell us about the title and specifically the word rehearsals. Why okay. that mm. choice of words?
1: Yeah, well, I got some fluff for that, but I did. That's why I did try to explain in the um, in the afterward a little bit more about that because obviously you can't. This is not comparable to the Holocaust. It is in some ways comparable to what happened in when the Germans invaded Poland. Now they were very careful when they went into. Belgians the, the second time, they were and originally they were they were careful about treating the civilians. They remembered what had happened and how much money it had cost them to try to erase the the image of um, the barbaric Hun. You know, so they they had very tight close instructions from Hitler on down to behave better towards the Belgians. But then there was actually this this time a genuine resistance that formed after a couple of years, and I think seventeen thousand Belgian civilians were killed. As you know, somewhat connected to the resistance, and uh, not you know, 29,000 Jews and others others were killed in Allied bombing too, but um, uh, but they, in Eastern Europe they just behaved with the same brutality. And my my point is really, when in rehearsals was that it was not, you know, some people give too much credit to Hitler. He was only in power for six years before the uh, in, in reshaping. German mentality and German outlook on things. He was in power just six years when World War II started, and you can certainly affect the uh, mindset of, of children in school, but, but grown-ups, no. You know, they, they these some of the ideas that were responsible for the barbaric behavior of, of the Germans in the war long predate uh, the, the, the Nazi coming to power, but their are a form that nationalism took in Germany, the form of uh, the German militarism, which was very distinctive from the, um, you know, for instance, dueling, which was part of the military uh, ethos, was uh, important, very, very important in Germany in the late 19th century, early 20th century. It had really died out elsewhere in Europe. There was no, people didn't, just, um, guys didn't duel anymore. So um, there was this very different culture and certainly different uh, military culture. There was a um, uh, just a glorification of, um, for instance, another, another real quick comparison, honor was so important. You were always, you, you carried out a duel or challenged somebody to a duel to defend your honor or the honor of the Kaiser's honor because you were wearing the Kaiser's uniform. Uh, there are 45 words with the prefix of honor in German, and there are only, I think, about five in English. So honor was very, very important. It was very important. Uh, they were very status-conscious, and you had to be a reserve, if you wanted to be anybody, you had to be a reserve officer. Every guy, a middle-class man was a reserve officer. And you were taught, there's another this is another German word, schneidigkeit, sharpness. You were taught that the duty of the officer was to be very um, easy, easily offended, ready to challenge somebody to a duel, to uh, not, not put up with any nonsense, to be just, you know, intolerant. And mm-hmm. that, was, uh, that was part of the the culture. You know, there, there are many, many examples of this. So there are these differences. Another difference is the, is the nationalism was just much more extreme. And, and it also was, uh, during the war, everybody became more nationalistic and people were nationalistic before the war. But it wasn't quite, it was more kind of celebrating your own, history, and your own culture, but the Germans just carried it a couple of steps further. And, uh, you know, there are these wonderful statements about, you know, God, because Lutheran pastors in particular authored these kind of hair-raising sermons about God, the Germans being God's chosen people, and uh, God must be pleased to see himself mirrored in the German soul, you know, there, these, these historians, the writers in allied countries and in neutral countries just had a field day going through these pamphlets Published by Lutheran pastors finding these gems mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and the other the other factor was anti-catholicism too that was responsible for the um, the treatment of of the um, Belgian population because they just thought they were bewitched by their priests, and forty five priests were um, were executed in those just a short time, you know less than three weeks uh, because they were supposedly leading. This guerrilla campaign, you know, it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so that was a factor uh, as well. And uh, uh, so, anyway, all these things predate predate Hitler and contributed to the behavior of the Germans during the Second World War. That was that was the point. Of, the point of the, uh, the the idea of the title of rehearsals.
0: Um, so, I guess what I got out of the title was this idea that. Uh, the brutality that was um, carried out upon the Belgians somehow translated into the brutality of the Holocaust? Am I wrong about that?
1: Well, that's um, the closer analogy is what I mentioned is the treatment of Polish civilians, just um, doing exactly what they did in Belgium, except on a much bigger scale. In in the same time period, they killed like, I think 17 or 18,000. This was the army before the, um, the real persecution of Poles begins just burning villages, shooting the, all the men. Usually all the men, sometimes women. But but there is this interesting fact that that Hitler that Hitler's anti-Semitism was never originally a, that important a part of his appeal. I mean he he actually had to tone down the anti-Semitism when he won his big victories in the 30s. I I used to ask students, you know, guess how many votes Hitler got in the election the 1929 election. All right, he got he got, I believe, 2.7% of the vote. He was not he was not a popular figure until the Great Depression hit. So yes, of course, term, Germans were anti-Semitic, but they weren't nearly as anti-Semitic as in the, if you had been asked in the 1900s, in the, uh, you would have said Russia and France because of the Dreyfus Affair. If you'd been asked in 1930, you would have said pole, the Poles because of uh, anti-Semitic legislation. But of course, there had to be a lot of anti-Semitism for everybody to cooperate. The people who cooperated with the Holocaust to carry that. Mm-hmm. But I, but there are other there are these other factors that I was talking about that figure in the treatment of Jews as well as the treatment of, um, of Poles mm-hmm. and other other Eastern Europeans. So um, so that was what that was the point that I was trying to make too. So there's there is some relevance for the Holocaust. One famous couplet was, "And the world may once again be healed by German ways." Have this very exalted um, pride in Germany, and and the uh, one one Danish um, theologian who collected, one of many people who collected these these quotes, concluded at the end of his book that, that he was trying to summarize what the, what they said. All of these German pastors. Germany is not the strongest nation in the world, but is a nation which, without comparison, stands highest in every respect. The determines the soul, chosen people, the crown of creation. All moral, moral virtues are in the German, nothing but his natural inborn qualities. All that is noble, good, and beautiful can therefore be described as German. It follows that the German people as such cannot possibly do wrong. It will always be preserved from wrongdoing by its inherent nature. But uh, I mean, specific quotations, that was from the, the summary by the Danish uh, theologian then there was just the belief also that the that small nation, Belgian civilians were told this, repeated this many times. They were told, small nations are going to disappear. I mean, Germany's destiny was European hegemony. And many of them, many, you keep reading this, this, um, you know, soldiers, but more often officers would tell somebody, uh, Belgian, Belgium will disappear, you know.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because it seems like during the occupation, the Belgians in both wars were in a state of limbo and one of the compelling stories that I talk about in the last uh, episode that I released, episode two of the podcast, was my cousin's mother was a courier. She worked for the census and people were against her because she was, uh, they said she was collaborating with the Germans and yet that's not really how it went down. They would do things like go out to the farms because what the the census was for the Germans, mm-hmm. and they would go out to the farms and uh, take inventory of their stock, you know, the the uh, animals and the crops and that type of thing. And then they would tell the farmers, "Tell us how many you have," and then they would say, "Okay, we're going to report this many," and it would be a fraction of what they have, and you need to hide uh, your Livestock or whatever it was, mm-hmm. and it, it just seemed like to you know to be in that place of this is my country, this isn't my country, you know how do I remain loyal to my com- country? It, it's it's another totally interesting rabbit hole to go down, but and yet they persevered, mm-hmm. they persevered. Somehow they persevered. Uh, I want to read one more excerpt that talks about some of the things that we've been talking about. Uh, that I highlighted, and um, get kind of your feedback about it. So this is also in the forward to the second edition. A couple of questions may occur to readers at this juncture. It has been asked for at least a generation, and not only by Germans, how long citizens of the Federal Republic must be made to feel guilty for the murders committed under the Nazi regime. Is it not unsporting to now add war crimes committed by soldiers of the Kaiserreich to the burden of German guilt? Scrupulous historians can only answer that the feelings of the descendants of the individuals whose action they described cannot be any of their concern. But it is also safe to say that few historians, unlike ordering executions in 1914, believed in collective guilt, and fewer still in transgenerational guilt. Nonetheless, the actions of the German army in Belgium are part of the historical record, and anyone wishing to explain German history between 1871 and 1945 needs to account for them. I had somebody tell me about this documentary that I'm doing. Who would be interested in it? Haven't the Germans paid enough? What do you say about this idea of haven't they paid enough and the German guilt?
1: Well, the first thing I want to say is that I was accused by some critics of like suggesting that this was there was a German national character that was it was brutal and um, non-humane. and uh, but uh, but I've, I'm certainly not saying that. Obviously, Germans german Germans have transformed themselves. Since the war, um, the successive generations, and uh, and they were diff- and before they were, you know, before the, um, you know, the um, unification of Germany, they were called, you know, the nation of, of um, poets and scholars. You know, they were not. They they had no, they were not. Um, they, um, Prussia was always militaristic, but the rest of Germany was not, not at all. So, um, so I was certainly not saying that this was innate a. Um, the, these traits that, that uh, came out in the, um, expressed themselves during the, the invasion of Belgium. Um, but again, I just, you know, it's, it's history, it happened. And particularly what was particularly imperative for me was that it was, uh, it was blotted out, it was just discredited. And uh, I just wanted that, that story to be told and that people would not uh, repeat this misinformation right. about uh, what had happened.
0: We're going to stop here for today, but be sure to join us next week when we pick up where we left off with Jeff Lipke's. I need to warn you, though, the subject matter is quite disturbing and not suitable for all audiences.
1: Yeah, it was was so vile. It was just, there was no, the, the... um, what was incredible was one of the women actually saw when she saw the soldiers with their guns leveled, she just, you know, pleaded. I mean, she looked pleadingly at them and held up her baby, you know, her little infant. Oh, yeah. and they still, they still, they were still open fire. You know, that was the order that was given fi- fire on them. It was just so uh, heartless. And then
0: Just a reminder, stay up to date with the latest news on the documentary as well as the podcast on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast platform. If you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. All those actions bump us up in the algorithms of the website, which in turn makes it easier for
1: people to find us.